How many of you are familiar with the phrase, the God of the gaps? The God of the gaps. This would be a common phrase. It's the idea that a believer's notion of God only exists to fill the gaps left in their scientific knowledge. And that as scientific knowledge has grown, the, the gaps in our understanding of the universe have gotten smaller, even to the point of eliminating any need for the notion of God whatsoever. For example, in the late 1800s, the atheist philosopher Frederick Nietzsche referred to belief in God as a delusion crammed into every gap in our understanding, a stopgap of a bygone era, for that gap has now been closed. As though we can now explain the origin of the ever-expanding universe apart from any notion of a creator, the uncaused first cause. We most certainly cannot and never will. Much less are we able to explain the origin of biological life on this planet and the ecosystem that sustains that life and never mind the origin of the human mind apart from any notion of an intelligent designer. We never will. Suppose that we had a stack of papers stretching from the, the floor of the sanctuary up to the highest point on the ceiling, with, with the top sheep just wedged just beneath the base of our steeple, with that stack of papers representing the gap in, say, the Apostle James's ability to explain the universe apart from any notion of God. And suppose I slid that last sheet off the top of that towering stack, closing the gap by the thickness of that single sheet, something like 0.1 millimeters. Would you describe that as having closed the gap in any meaningful way whatsoever? And surely not, and surely that's a generous description of the degree to which the gap has been closed since the first century. And even then, given the way that the gap has closed, has our understanding of physics and biology and medicine and germ theory and psychology and all the rest, has our knowledge of those things closed the gap in such a way as to improve your ability to predict or to control what tomorrow will bring? Has it done anything to answer the biggest questions of life? Anything to alleviate the great burden of the unknown? Even secular, atheistic intellectuals are writing and teaching today about the fact that our modern, technologically advanced and scientifically enlightened society is plagued by a greater degree of anxiety, and fear than ever before. Your future is just as unknowable and just as uncontrollable as it was in the days of the Apostle James. And so I invite you to turn with me to James chapter 4, verse 13. You can find it on page 231 in the second half of the Pew Bible. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord to you. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Let us pray. Father, help us now to reflect upon all that you have spoken, to truly hear 
to believe and to live in light of all that you have revealed. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Well, recall the context in which our passage is found. Chapter 4 of James begins with James explaining what causes quarrels and what causes fights within the church, namely self-serving desires, leading him to the exhortation in verse 10 to humble yourselves therefore before the Lord. Uh, The subsequent passages then provide three specific examples of the kind of pride that tears churches apart. The first example, found in verses 11 and 12, is sinfully critical speech, judgmental speech, talking as though we know what is in another person's heart. That's the first example. The second example, found in verses 13 through 17 today, also has to do with speech, talking as though we know what the future will hold. This continues James's teaching about the importance of speech, for the words of our mouths reveal the state of our hearts. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you who identify as people of faith, do your words about the future make you out to be a functional atheist? Speaking and acting no differently than an atheist would. Speaking and acting without reference to God, without reference to eternity. Saying things like, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there in trade and make a profit. Notice uh, from what the rest of the passage says that the the issue here is not planning for the future, nor is the issue seeking to make a profit. Many have attempted to to rip verse 13 of chapter 4 of James out of its context in order to twist it to say either that it's wrong to make any plans for the future, or more often that it's wrong to seek to make a profit. But those are not the points that James takes issue with in the following verses. And there are plenty of other examples and instructions in Scripture, both of planning for the future, as we seek to be wise stewards of the time and the resources that God has entrusted to us, and of seeking to make a profit through God-honoring, neighbor-loving, just and righteous business practices. No, the issue, as with the previous example of pride, is presumption. It's not planning, it's not profit, it's presumption. As James explains, verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. Just as presuming to know what is in another person's heart puts you in the place of God, well, so too does presuming to know what the future holds. In the first case, from verses 11 and 12, we're failing to leave the judgment of another person's heart to God alone. In the second, we're failing to leave the outcome of our labors to God alone. Both are in His hands alone, for He is both our judge and He is our Lord. Proverbs 16.9 says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. This doesn't just apply to us peons, but even to the great kings of the earth. Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. 
Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Psalm 115.3 He alone is judge and He alone is our sovereign Lord. We, on the other hand, what, what are we? Well, James continues, verse 14, What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. A mist, a vapor. Uh, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament uses this same word to translate the Hebrew word that dominates the book of Ecclesiastes that we studied not too long ago. Often translated as vanity, right? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The more literal translation would be and should be mist or vapor. Vapor of vapors, all is a vapor. Like a little puff of smoke when you blow out a match. It's there one minute and then the next it's not. As quickly as it came, it's gone, leaving no trace that it was even there. So too is your life. Vapor of vapors, you are a vapor. Here one moment and then gone the next. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it further fleshes out what this means that we are a vapor. In three ways in particular. One, life is fleeting. Life is fleeting, meaning it lasts for a relatively short time. Two, life is elusive. It's elusive, meaning you, you can't grasp and take hold of it to keep it from vanishing any more than you can grasp and take hold of that little puff of smoke from a match. And three, life is seemingly insignificant, appearing to have made no discernible impact upon the world that we leave behind. The book of Ecclesiastes, it's all about wrestling with the reality of our vapor-like existence. That's why I titled my sermon series through Ecclesiastes a while back the same thing I titled today's sermon from James. It's about life as a vapor, living life as a vapor, for that is what we are. I think some people, as they're, they're reading through the book of James, are, are tempted just to, to skip over this passage without much thought, ignoring the, the pain to our ego that is inflicted by verse 14. It tells us that we are a mist. People say, oh, this passage is about traveling merchants who are overconfident in their money-making schemes. I'm not a traveling merchant. I don't have elaborate money-making schemes for the future. So this doesn't apply to me. I can move past it without much thought. But this issue of traveling merchants being overconfident in their schemes, that's just one application of this highly unsettling reality. You are no less a vapor than those traveling merchants were. You are no less a vapor than Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos. You too need to hear and to heed James's message. Wisdom. Wisdom is found in wrestling with this reality by looking the elephant in the eye, if you will. As Moses prays, in Psalm 90, verse 12, he prays, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. As David prayed in Psalm 39 that we read earlier, O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath 
Surely a man goes about as a shadow. This is where wisdom is to be found. Uh, Ancient Greek writers claimed that there were three sayings, three maxims, prominently inscribed on the ancient temple of Apollo at Delphi sometime before the 5th century B.C., with the first and the most well-known of these three sayings being, know thyself, know thyself. The the earliest writings uh, from the Greeks explained this to mean, know your limits and know your place in the cosmos, and then walk humbly in the light of that knowledge your knowledge of your limits, your knowledge of your place in the cosmos. Know thyself. Walk humbly in light of that knowledge. Like Ecclesiastes, long before the maxims of Delphi, James is saying, know thyself, for thou art but a vapor. Know thyself. And then watch how how your words expose an an overconfident self-reliance, failing to acknowledge your utter dependence upon God. And his will. Verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The grammar of the beginning of this verse is, is a little unusual. It's actually still the same sentence that began in verse 13, with, with this latter portion of the sentence building on the action of that first part, so that it'd be more accurate to translate it. Verse 13: Come now, you who are saying, Today or tomorrow, we'll do this or that. Instead of saying, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. You're saying, today or tomorrow, we'll do this or that. Instead of saying, if the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. And that that continuation of the action from the first part highlights that James, he's not simply inserting the phrase, if the Lord wills, is he? He doesn't repeat what he said before. He inserts something else, and thus he emphasizes something else in verse 15. What is it? He says, if the Lord wills, we will live and then do this or that. The fact that you have been given today does not mean that you have been promised tomorrow. You will live to see tomorrow if and only if the Lord sovereignly wills it. It's unfortunate that that for many of us, it takes a terrible tragedy like the fires in Lahaina to reveal how uncertain the future truly is for any of us. The day is coming when you will breathe your last breath. None of us can foresee or otherwise control when that will be. And if that moment does not come today, and it might, well, that is no indication that it won't come tomorrow. So be careful how you speak about your plans for tomorrow. Your plans for success in business, your plans for marriage, for children, for grandchildren, your plans for retirement, your plans for ministry, your plans for our church, your plans for when you will finally entrust your salvation and your life to Christ, your plans for when you will finally get around to sharing the gospel with your loved ones. If the Lord wills, you and your loved ones will live to see tomorrow. That is why the Lord declares that today is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6.2 Today is the day of salvation. If the Lord wills, we will live 
and do this or that. And when we do live to see another day, it's often very different than we predicted it would be, especially when viewed from a distance as we look back upon the years that have transpired. As I was studying uh, computer sciences and software engineering in college and grad school, I certainly wasn't planning out the turns that my professional life has ended up taking. As I began studying at seminary and serving a church in Louisville, Kentucky over 10 years ago now, I wasn't planning out the turns that my ministry has taken, leading me here today. When Ashley and I got married over 20 years ago, we could have never envisioned life unfolding as it has. From career changes to to moving to multiple other states to battling various forms of illness and cancer to being without children for 16 years to adopting two amazing little boys in our 40s. It feels like almost nothing has unfolded according to any of our plans. And yet, the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, nothing has taken the Lord by surprise. In his book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, 16. Linda Baker didn't know on Thursday afternoon that she was hours away from receiving the kidney transplant she had been waiting for for over two years. But the Lord did. He knew, for He willed it in eternity past. Just as the three beloved members of our church who have departed to be with the Lord the last few months, didn't know that they had awakened, eaten breakfast, and done so many other things for the last time. But the Lord did, for He willed it. And so as we make plans for the future, and we should make plans for the future to be good stewards, we should do so saying, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that, and it will turn out this way or that. Now, this this raises the question as to whether we must literally say, if the Lord wills, any time that we're talking about our intentions for the future. Now, that might might sound silly to you, but but this was a common practice among many Christians not that long ago. Perhaps you've seen old letters written in English with the abbreviation DV at the end of the letter. Or even posters announcing upcoming events with D.V. after the time. August 26, 2 p.m., DV. Many of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. DV stands for Deo Valente, which is Latin for God willing. Regularly added to personal letters and poster announcements by Christians of the past because of this verse. James 4, verse 15. 1 Corinthians 4.19, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth, I will come to you soon, Deo Valente, if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians 16.7, he says to them again, I hope to spend some time with you, Deo Valente, if the Lord permits. So there's a a practice of putting into to practice what, what James says here. And yet, there's at least one place where, where Paul in his writings doesn't spell that out. Namely, it's Romans 15, 28, as Paul talks about his plan to leave for Spain by way of Rome. He just states that that's what's going to happen. 
Okay, so did Paul fall into sin as he penned Romans 15, 28? Was Paul wrong not to include the words, Lord willing, when discussing those plans? Surely not. What's at issue here is not so much the words of our mouths as the posture of our hearts. This call is to live your life with the giver of life ever in view. It's not so much about tacking on if the Lord wills or Dea Valente to everything we say about the future. It's living your life with the giver of life ever in view. As you make your plans, as you speak about those plans, as you work those plans, do you do so with God in view? And I don't mean simply acknowledging that everything is dependent upon His sovereign will. Yes, that. And thus holding your plans with an open palm instead of a clenched fist. Yes, it's that, but it's beyond that. Do you genuinely seek His guidance as you make your plans? Praying for your will to be further aligned with His will. Praying for His blessings upon your plans. And then in seeking His hidden, not yet revealed will, do you begin with His revealed will? Do you begin your thoughts of your future and decisions you make with what He has revealed, His his prescription for your life, His commandments, His Word? James's point can be made not simply by asking the question he asked in verse 14, what is your life? But by asking, whose is your life? Not just what is your life, but whose is your life? For if you have been purchased by the blood of Christ, quote, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. So live your life with the giver of life ever in view. Maybe for you, overconfidence in the future is not a particular temptation. Maybe for you, the greater temptation is what might be considered the opposite of overconfidence in the future, rather underconfidence in the future. Those who are constantly anxious and fretting about what tomorrow may bring. Well, if that's you, hear the words of Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, where he says this, Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You see, that peace about tomorrow, about the unknown, is not about coming to know the future. It's about coming to know the God who controls the future. That's where peace is found. And this gets us back to the broader context of James's letter. Not merely where he begins in chapter 4 about conflict between church members, but rather the, the suffering of persecution and oppression that they are suffering at the hands of those in power, which he begins with in chapter 1, verse 1. Recall that the letter began with a call to pray for wisdom to endure the trials they were facing in faith, to remain steadfast. Pray for the wisdom of Job. Pray for the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. The wisdom to trust God when you don't understand what He's doing. Knowing that He sees. Knowing that He cares. Knowing that He is accomplishing His will. 
So then whether you struggle with overconfidence about the future, underconfidence about the future, whether you are presumptuous or whether you are anxious, the instruction is the same. Live your life with the giver of life ever in view. Never mind about tomorrow. What has God set before you to do today? You have not been promised tomorrow, so how are you stewarding the gift of today? That's what we're called to. Finally, verse 16. He continues, he says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. The phrase boast in arrogance sounds strange in English. I think that the sense of the Greek phrase there comes through better in the NIV, which says, you boast in your arrogant schemes. You boast in your schemes. Or the New Living Translation, you are boasting about your own pretentious plans. So to boast here has the sense of put confidence in. You put confidence in your presumptuous plans, and this is evil. For it places you in the position of God, and all such presumption is sin. Verse 17, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Notice that the sudden shift here from the second person you boast to the third person, whoever, and for him it is sin. The shift from the second person to the third person. And notice how general the statement suddenly is. It's presenting this as a proverb. Now, whether it was a well-known proverb to James's audience or whether it's being birthed here, we don't know. But uh, when considered on its own, apart from this particular context, well, that proverb calls for a sermon all its own. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Failing to do what you know you should do is an awfully large topic. It covers everything that we often refer to as sins of omission. I don't know if you're familiar with that distinction, sins of omission. Most of our talk about sin is in the category in reference to sins of commission or, or commission. Doing what we know we ought not to do. That's a sin of commission, commission. But there are also sins of omission, not doing what we know we ought to do. I think we'll spend some, some more time on this topic of sins of omission in our gathering this evening at 4.30. So, so be sure to come back for that. For now, let's just try to understand why James included this here. So what you get to, every time you get to a verse of Scripture, just think, why is this here? Why does it follow what came before? Why does it come before what follows? On your first read through James's letter, it, verse 17 seems a bit out of place. What's he saying? What particular sin of omission does he have in view? Well, I think it's straightforward. It's the, the omission of considering God in eternity as you make plans and as you speak about those plans during your vapor-like existence on earth. And that omission of God in your thinking and your planning is equivalent to the commission of presumption. And thus he's calling us to repent of the sin of presumption. In all its forms, whether it be the, the presumptuous judging of the hearts of others as addressed in the preceding verses, 11 and 12, or the presumptuous judging about what tomorrow will bring. Repent of the sin of presumption. Now, you may think it's, it's a small thing to jump to conclusions about the hearts of others or to, to fail to include the words, if the Lord wills, in your planning. Maybe that seems a, a small thing to you, but your Creator and your judge says otherwise. He's the one who gets to decide what is and is not a, a big deal, what is and is not sin deserving of death. 
And if it's sinful for, for traveling merchants to presume that they will be granted success in their business dealings in the coming year, how much more so for any of us to presume that we will be granted eternal life, the forgiveness of our sins in the coming judgment, if we have not obeyed His will to repent and believe in the gospel. Entrust yourself to the one who perfectly entrusted himself to his Father's will. As he prayed, not my will, but yours be done in the Garden of Gethsemane, preparing to go to the cross, to die in the place of all who will place their trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Entrust yourself to the one who perfectly entrusted himself to the Father's will. The only gap in our knowledge of the universe that can alleviate the great burden of the unknown is the gap in our knowledge of God, a gap filled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ and His cross is what gives you confidence that your vapor-like existence matters, even when you can't make sense of what God is doing with it. Because it's at the cross that God has proven His wisdom and His power and His goodness toward you. It's Christ and His cross that calms our anxieties and our fears about what tomorrow will bring. Yes, our, our, our immediate future is still unknowable. And yes, our immediate future is still uncontrollable. But because of Christ and His cross, we know that our God is wise and powerful and good. And we know that He is accomplishing His good and wise and powerful purposes through our seemingly insignificant lives. And we know what glories await us in eternity with Him. And so we can entrust ourselves to His providential care here and now as we seek to live our lives with Him ever in view. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word where we find Your revealed will for our lives. Lord, help us to reflect upon all that You have revealed that we may keep you ever in view. Lord, bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen.